Hello, today we have Professor Chris Lowry from CU Boulder uh, here to talk about his research on the microbiota, gut-brain access, uh, and the effect that diet exercise has on mental health. Um, so Chris, the project that you've been working on released a final report called Changing Hearts, Changing Minds, which provided insight into the factors that affect teens' mental health, such as the microbiota, gut-brain access, stress, diet, exercise, and sleep. Uh, so could you go into greater depth about your research on the microbiota gut-brain axis? Yeah, so my research group at University of Colorado Boulder is interested in how the, what we call the gut microbiome communicates with the brain and affects brain function. And specifically, we're interested in how the gut microbiome affects our propensity for stress-related psychiatric disorders, things like depression, anxiety disorders, and also post-traumatic stress disorder for some people. Uh, how can the average college student implement easy changes into their lifestyle to improve their diet, and what foods are good to eat? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so let me just put everything in context. When we talk about the gut microbiome, we're really talking about the microbes that, that coexist with, with humans in in the, in the gastrointestinal tract. And what we're learning is that these microbes have impacts on not just our physiological health or the, the health of our body, but also the health of our brain. And these microbes can affect our brain through a number of different mechanisms. This includes signaling through sensory nerves that innervate the gut. Also, release of chemicals that can get into the blood and then be trans, translocated to the brain. And also through impacting our immune system. And so all of, those, all of those mechanisms are involved in how the microorganisms in our gut can influence the brain. And so one of the major impacts on what exists in our gut are things like diet. And so your question is, is relevant to how does the diet affect the microbiome and then how do does, how does those changes in the microbiome impact the brain? And so... I want to start off by saying what we're learning is that the more diversity you have in your gut microbiome, the more likely you are to have a healthy phys physical and emotional health. And so you can, you can view one of the goals as a college student of essentially having the most diverse ecosystem that you possibly can for you as an individual. Then the question is, how do I increase the diversity of my personal ecosystem. And uh, what we're learning is that there's a number of, of things that you can do to increase this diversity. And over and over again, different researchers with different groups of people studying thousands and thousands of people are finding that the main contributor to both the diversity and the uh, favorable composition of the gut microbiome is how many different plants you eat. And so uh, this, was, this, this idea was first raised in a project called the American Gut Project, which was a, a study of uh, over 10,000 people in, in the United States. And they found, they had a question on the survey that was a really interesting question. And the question was essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, in the last week, how many different plants have you eaten? Um, and the responses are zero, one to five, six to 10, all the way up to over 30. And what they found was that as people reported 
consuming more than 30 different plants, up to more than 30 different plants in a week, they had higher and higher and higher diversity of the gut microbiome. And so that was the first clue. But then that's been replicated in a number of other studies. And there's a new study that just came out finding essentially the same thing. And what they were doing is looking at different lifestyle factors and asking, okay, which lifestyle factors can, can predict high diversity, which we think is healthy. And I, I brought the paper with me because I didn't want to get it wrong. But the number two thing predicting a, a high diversity is raw vegetables, salad times per week. But there are also things like uh, cruciferous vegetables times per week, vegetables times per week, fruits times per week. So you see a pattern here. And this is very consistent. And it also relates to something uh, that's new in psychiatry, which is called nutritional psychiatry. And there's a lot of excitement about nutritional psychiatry. And really, this is the idea that you can do, you can make whole dietary interventions and treat depression or treat anxiety disorders. And it's not only true for people that have a diagnosis of depression or anxiety disorders, it's also true for people that are not clinically depressed, but an improvement in their diet can decrease their depressive symptoms. So everyone can benefit from having a better diet. And this was really driven home in, a, in what's called a meta-analysis of multi, multiple studies in 2019. And they, they basically analyzed 16 studies that have been done looking at whole dietary changes and the effects on depression and anxiety. And what they found was very good evidence that, in fact, whole dietary changes that are essentially like a Mediterranean diet, so high diversity of, of plant consumption, healthy fats, occasionally fish, nuts, seeds, um, these types of dietary changes, substituting those for takeaway foods, high fat foods, high sugar foods, um, could de decrease depressive symptoms. So eat more plants. <laughs> that's the shortest. That's the shortest answer to the question of what college students can do. And I, it's it's not an easy task, fr frankly. I understand that it's challenging because, you know, I recall living in a dorm, and you know, if I could make it to the cafeteria, I was fine, and I could go to the salad bar. But I think everyone had ramen noodles in you know uh, on the shelf in in a hot pot. Even when I was a student, and my, my daughter, who's uh, 10, she was so excited last night because we found the ramen noodle packets uh, at the grocery store. And she's like, oh my gosh, it's ramen noodles, and it's only 19 cents, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, that type of processed food doesn't, doesn't contain the type of vegetables that we're talking about. We're talking about fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, nuts, seeds. Um, and what? And then I want to extrapolate, wh why is that? And it turns out that every plant has its own microbiome. And so plants are living organisms, just like humans. Plants have microbiomes, just like humans. And a, a little known fact that I like to, to repeat is that a three to four leaf spinach plant has over 800 different species of bacteria inside the plant. So when you eat a spinach salad, you're eating almost a thousand different kinds of bacteria, which then end up in your body. They're living 
Some of them may colonize your microbiome and persist there and increase the diversity of your microbiome. So did the findings of your research cause you to change your own lifestyle? And did you find it hard to implement changes? Uh, that's, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, they did, actually. <laughs> I, do, I do this crazy thing where, to, to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of surprised you asked that question because <laughs> it forces me to talk about myself, but okay. <laughs> um, li- literally, when I, when, I, when I learned from the American Gut Project, when I was looking at the data early on before it was published, that this question of how many different plants you eat can determine how diverse your microbiome is. Uh, I thought to myself, well, you know, how can I maximize the number of different plants that I eat every day? And, you know, another part of the context, which we knew at the time, was that if you look at Yanomami Amerindian populations in the upper Amazon basin, at the time, they had the highest diversity of any human microbiome that had been studied. And if you compare that diversity to, say, people living in Omaha, Nebraska, sorry if anyone's from Omaha, my family's from Nebraska, so I can say this, um, the Yanomami have much higher diversity than people living in Omaha, Nebraska, in the United States. And so when you look at that on the surface, the Amerindian populations have very high diversity, very high resilience, stress resilience, physiological resilience, and people living in the United States have very low resilience. So if something comes along and is stressful, we're much more vulnerable with our deprived ecosystem, right? You might think of it that way. And so when I learned this, I, um, I decided, oh, I'm just going to make a, a shake that has 30 different plants. And I literally went to the grocery store and I grabbed 30 different plants like beets and parsnips and things that I'd never eaten before like cactus, uh, you know, raw turmeric. Uh, I love tomatillos. It's, it's very seasonal, right? You find different things when you go to the grocery store at different times. And the point was to buy just like one of each. So it's a different way of thinking about eating, right? Because if, if you're a hunter-gatherer, you're not going to eat like five pounds of kale, right? I mean, you're just not going to find, find five pounds of kale in the forest, right? You're going to find some nuts and seeds and root vegetables, etc. So if you think of yourself as a hunter-gatherer and you go to the grocery store and you get a little bit of that and a little bit of that and you put it all in, in a, a blender and I, I use six cups of water with 30 different plants, make the slurry, and then I have like, I don't know, four heaping tablespoons of that in a quart of water. And the funny, the, one of the first things I, I noticed when I was doing that is I, I was too lazy to freeze it or, you know, package it in any way. So I just put it in mason jars in the fridge and I thought, well, I'll just keep drinking it until it goes off, right? Because everything goes off. It never goes off. <laughs> I mean, the latest batch I made, I think it's, it's been in the fridge for like three months and I'm still, you know, opening a jar and making these drinks. And why is that? Because there's so such a diversity of bacteria in that jar that no one species of bacterium can take over and essentially dominate the ecosystem. And that that's really what we're striving for in our own bodies. We don't want C. difficile or helicobacter or some what's called pathobiont to have an opportunity, a window, to get a foothold and expand and take over and cause disease effectively. One of the biggest causes of C. difficile infection, for example, 
is having a series of antibiotics. And if you decimate your own ecosystem, if you decimate your own bacterial populations in your gut, C. difficile, which is normally present at very low, low abundance, all of a sudden, you know, they've got an opportunity. There's no competitors, so they can expand, they can proliferate. And if it's a pathogen, they can cause disease. And so that's a really good example of why you want diversity. You don't want to be decimated or deficient in a way that can allow the bad guys to get in and take over, right? So yeah, that was the first thing I did. Uh, later, I would go, before the pandemic, in the, in the before times, you know, before the whole pandemic thing, I would go to the grocery store in the morning for breakfast, and I would just bought, you know, I'd grab a couple of blueberries and a couple of blackberries and a couple of raspberries and all the seeds and all the nuts and, you know, just a few of each. And I, I found I could get 50 different plants, kind of like a hunter-gatherer again, right, for breakfast. And it was so delicious. I mean, and then the pandemic came along and I couldn't do that anymore. So I just relied on my drinks, right, which are in the fridge and easy, you know, and we're all busy, right? And so part of the thinking there was, I kind of, you know, it takes me like four hours to make that, right? Because you're chop. all I do is rinse the vegetables off and chop them up and throw them in a blender with water. But it takes time, right, to do that. And, and so for me, part of the, the attraction to doing that was that I could do it once and then, you know, consume that for the next month and just putting some of it in a jar and drinking it with a, a wedge of lemon or lime. So just some ideas. But I think, you know, the key is fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, plants. So fresh plants... And it doesn't have to be a huge quantity. Like a three to four leaf spinach plant has a thousand species, right? So if you just have a little bit of spinach and then a little bit of something else, that's enough in terms of getting all those bacteria into your body, which here, you know, in this conversation, that's the goal. That's really interesting. Uh, what do you think the most damaging effects of depression are on young people? Oh, gosh. Uh, there's a whole spectrum. Um, depression can be very debilitating. In fact, um, when I, I used to live and work in England, and when I was living there, they predicted that depression would be the, the, the most significant cause of daily adjusted life years. And so this is disability adjusted life years. So this is disability over a lifetime, right? And at the time, it was things like cardiovascular disease and diseases associated with early childhood. Um, but they predicted, I think, by 2020 or 2030 that it would be number one. And by 2020, it, the, the World Health Organization uh, determined that it was number one worldwide. And so this is not an insignificant problem. Right, and it, it can start very early in life, and that's one of the challenges. So, one thing that I think surprised many of us in the field early on during the pandemic is that it was young people who showed the biggest increases in anxiety and depression. And you know, for somebody like me who's been around a long time, I think of young people and I think of you know, just really vibrant social lives and lots of social interaction and activities and physical exercise and 
maybe not eating so well, but you don't have to eat quite so well to be healthy when you're younger. And, um, and so, you know, to see that the young people were so hard hit by the pandemic in terms of mental health, initially to me was surprising. But on the other hand, if I turned it around and I said, well, wait a minute, why, why do all the young pe- these young people cope so well? Why are they so resilient? It's because they have these social networks. They have this physical activity. They're out running around. They're out being active and social. But then during the pandemic, all that stopped. Right. So it was mandated, you know, that we had to isolate at home. And so those social groups were not social groups anymore, at least not in person. And so the things that young people rely on for social support and, you know, the things that lead to improved mental mental health were kind of taken away. And so when 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 that happened during the pandemic and we saw these very striking increases in anxiety and depression in young people. Yes, it was a surprise, but in retrospect, maybe it shouldn't have been because, you know, this these are things that were taken away. Um, so how exactly does a healthy diet and exercise minimize the effects of depression? So so we know that whole whole dietary changes can improve mental health mental health functioning. I, I'll, I'll refer to another study that I think is very revealing, and it's, it, it touches on something that we haven't touched we haven't touched on um, much in depth yet, or if at all, I think. And this is something called inflammation. And so I did mention that the microbiome can affect our immune systems, but part of the function of the microbiome is to make sure that our immune system is not, not overactive in terms of inflammation. And so why is this relevant to mental health? So a recent study that looked at the 101st Airborne in Kentucky. So these are very young, very healthy, military fit, active military personnel. And then they're deployed to Afghanistan. And so the question was, if we look at all kinds of lifestyle factors and physiological measurements like sleep, physical activity, um, blood measurements, if we take those at baseline while they're at boot camp and then they're deployed and they come back, can we predict using machine learning or artificial intelligence who will develop post-traumatic stress disorder? And the first important conclusion was, yes, we can predict who will develop post-traumatic stress disorder after deployment. So it's three, three to six months after deployment. But among the highest ranking features of things that could predict who would develop post-traumatic stress disorder, I'll say PTSD after deployment, many of these highest ranking features were biomarkers of inflammation. So the immune system is overreactive. Um, And this ties in with something called the hygiene hypothesis or the old friends hypothesis. Uh, which was put forward by my colleague, Graham Rook, at University of College London. He's an immunologist uh, in the United Kingdom. And what's happening as, so by 2050, two-thirds of the world's population will be urban. So there's a mass migration of humans to urban environments. But as people move to urban environments, our environment becomes more sterile. And so we're exposed to less complicated or complex 
environmental ecosystem. So we can get microbial exposures to our diet, but we all breathe in billions of bacteria every day in the air, right? And if you live on a farm or you work with farm animals, you're breathing in, in a much more diverse uh, microbial ecosystem in the air if you live in a rural environment compared to if you live in an apartment complex in a city. And so what's happened is as people have moved into cities, we've lost exposure to the types of microorganisms that would normally keep inflammation under control. And consequently, our immune system is disinhibited and overreactive. And we, we showed this experimentally in a study with my colleague Grant, uh, Stefan Reber in Germany. And so we looked at 20 young, healthy males that grew up in Germany. 20 grew up in cities of over 100,000 people without pets. 20 grew up on farms with farm animals. And then we brought them into the lab and exposed everybody to this stressor called the, the Trier social stress test. And it essentially involves getting up and giving a spontaneous speech in front of scientists in white lab coats that are trained not to smile or nod or you know, show any sign of appreciation uh, or acknowledgement. And then um, this is very stressful. This is one of the most stressful things we can do in a research laboratory that's considered ethical. Um, and so we all respond with increased heart rate, increased stress hormones, and increased inflammation. So someone with depression has a much exaggerated inflammatory response to the same stress exposure. But what was really interesting about this study of urban versus rural um, people in Germany, so city slickers versus you know country folk, was that when we exposed the, the people that grew up in cities to this stress, um, they had a much exaggerated inflammatory response to this psychosocial stressor. So if you think about the implications of that, if we live in a city, we're exposed to stressful experiences, maybe you know we have a disagreement at the checkout counter at the grocery store or something, that's a psychosocial stressor. But our immune system perceives that as much more threatening. And how, you know, where did, where did this immune system evolve? It evolved because if you have a stressful encounter in our evolutionary past, you know, hunter-gatherer existence, stressful encounters often predict injury. And so if you're going to be wounded in an altercation, the best strategy is to activate your immune system, traffic all those immune cells to different parts of the body because you can't predict where you're going to be wounded. And then you have all this pathogen-fighting uh, immune capability just in case you get injured, right? Well, that typically doesn't happen anymore in you know living in a city. And so when you activate the immune system in that way, most of the impact is negative. Um, and we know that chronic low-grade inflammation, like we see in cities, is a, is a very good predictor of depression and anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. And so that's one of the side effects of this kind of evolutionary past where our immune system being activated in, in situations of potential threat clearly was adaptive throughout human history, but not so much anymore. And one of the consequences of this chronic hyperimmune activation is common mental disorders.
you talked earlier about sort of staying away from foods with high fat, high sugar, highly processed. Um, what are some examples of these types of food that are super common that people may not know that they should be staying away from? So the, the thing to keep in mind, you know, when, when we talk about eating more fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and that kind of thing, when you eat those types of foods, you're less likely to eat the types of foods that would be detrimental. And so the, the Mediterranean diet is an anti-inflammatory diet. So that's part of its benefit is it keeps inflammation under control. But there are also foods that you can eat that are inflammatory and they interact with each other. So one of my favorite papers, which <laughs> I really love, is they show that if you eat a hamburger, you have an inflammatory response to the hamburger, to the meat in the hamburger. But if you put a slice of avocado on the hamburger, then you don't have an inflammatory response. So these foods interact with each other. And that's likely because of the, the anti-inflammatory or good fats that are in avocado, right? So that's one example. Fat foods can be inherently anti-inflammatory because they have anti-inflammatory lipids, or they can be pro-inflammatory because they have pro-inflammatory lipids or sugar, high sugar content. So sugar is inflammatory. Um, it also can result in the production of kind of toxic physiological uh, chemicals that are not good for our bodies. Um, and so on the same list of things that, you know, um, increase the diversity of the microbiome, there are also things that decrease the diversity of the microbiome, and that includes eating ice cream a number of times a week. So, But keep in mind, if you're like a... You know, if you're eating ice cream every night, then you're probably not eating all those healthy things that we just talked about, right? Because you're not hungry. So maybe the maybe the the solution is eat all those healthy things first, and then if you're still hungry for ice cream, have ice cream because you've you've had all those good things, right? I think ice cream is mainly detrimental if it prevents you from eating because you're not hungry, prevents you from eating all those healthy things. So eat those healthy things first. And if you still want ice cream, then go for it. That's what I'd say. So um, going forward in your research, like what do you want to find out more about the microbiome, like the connection between the microbiome and the brain? So the big black box is really what are the, what's the mechanism? And, you know, in 2013, NIH had a, a big symposium, and it was all about the microbiome gut-brain axis that we're talking about. And um, one of the NIH program officers you know, they put it very simply, they wanted to know what's the mechanism. And I think that might be a little bit simplistic or overly simplistic because not, there's not one mechanism. There's going to be perhaps thousands of mechanisms. And that's what makes this problem so difficult to study is if there's thousands of mechanisms, which of those thousands of mechanisms are the most important mechanisms, right? And once you understand that diversity is important, well, that's a much bigger question, right? And it's not, it's not a linear process. A causes B, and then B causes C, and C causes depression, right? So the, the microbiome has this, think of it as an orchestra, right? The orchestra is playing, and all the instruments have their important functions. And if one of the instruments is missing in a particular piece, and you happen to be particularly familiar with the piece, you'll notice that something's missing, right? It's not complete. It doesn't have the same 
overall impact without one or two or three of those instruments playing in the orchestra. And if you get down to one instrument playing in the orchestra, you're really in trouble, right? You might not even recognize it uh, as an orchestral piece. And so that's a level of complexity that really exists in an ecosystem. And I think we all need to think of our bodies as more of an ecosystem as, one, as, a, as opposed to one kind of monolithic being. Right, we are in part who we are because of who they are, right? Who those bacteria are and viruses are and archaea and phages that coexist with us. The important thing is we have some control over who they are, right? Who we who we cohabitate our bodies with. We do have some control over that, and that's really exciting, right? If you understand, wait a minute, I. I have some level of control over what I'm coexisting with, sleeping with and eating with and, you know, running with. And because these bacteria come with me everywhere and they do everything that I do. Um, so the article that you were interviewed for um, in the CU paper um, were mentioned that um, programs that schools have tried to implement um, to get healthier school lunches have gotten a lot of backlash. How would you suggest schools implement healthy diets while minimizing negative attitudes towards it? Yeah, it's a difficult problem um, because you can't make all the people happy all the time, right? With any kind of any kind of school-based um, lunch program or nutritional program, and I, I I was aware of this living in England when Jamie Oliver was trying to promote healthy foods and healthy meals for children in schools and not everyone wants healthy food and um, it's you know it's very it's, it's very difficult to mandate that people have healthy lifestyles and eat eat healthy foods um, I think the important thing is is really an education to to make the point that you know your what you eat not only impacts your physical health, and of course we all know our physical health is important, but it also impacts your mental health. And I think that raises the stakes a little bit because it, if, if you know that making bad food choices for your child can result in a higher risk of depression or anxiety disorders or worst, worst case scenario, suicide, later in life, the stakes are higher, right? I mean, you, no one wants that for their child. And if you understand that, that, that these are very strong predictors, then maybe we'd all try a little bit harder to, to get our children to eat more, more healthy foods. When I, when I was thinking about what, this with my own two children, I, I would experiment with like, before dinner, you know, before the big meal comes out, I would put just a few carrots, you know, little carrots on the table or a few blueberries or a few blackberries or just a few of something, right, that was a plant that was healthy. And they're so hungry, they would eat it, right? They'd just go over and they'd pick up the bowl and they'd, they'd eat it. So maybe, you know, we need to be a little bit creative about um, getting getting some buy-in from from the kids. But I think if the kids understand that, 
their mental health and therefore their performance, right? Their performance in school or their, their athletic performance is all going to be related to their, their state of mental health. So if, if they understand the stakes, maybe, and the, and the direct links, maybe that's a, a greater motivation. It's amazing how just little changes can have such a big impact on you, not only your physical, but your mental health as well. Um, and I feel like a lot of people aren't aware of that until they actually know the science backing it. So thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Great information. You're so welcome. It's really been great being here. Thank you so much. Thank you.